listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. Putt is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am Executive Director of Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency. PUT is the only 501c3 advocacy organization exclusively devoted to protecting independent pharmacies and their patients from pharmacy benefit manager abuse. PUT donations are fully tax deductible, and anyone who donates is instantaneously a PUT member. Our podcast is sponsored by DataScan Pharmacy Software. DataScan is an independently owned business that, like PUT, is an independent fighting for the rights of other independents, in this case, pharmacy. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Daniel A. Hussar is Dean Emeritus and Remington Professor of Pharmacy Emeritus at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy at the University of the Sciences. He has a long and distinguished career for which he was honored with the Remington Honor Medal of the American Pharmacists Association and the Distinguished Pharmacy Educator Award of the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy. He's broadly published and is the author and editor of The Pharmacist Activist, a free monthly newsletter touching on the most pressing issues facing the pharmacy profession. So I could go on, but really, I don't know how to put this, but he's kind of a big deal. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Monique. I'm pleased to join you and um, commend you on everything I've learned about the organization. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, we've done a lot in the relatively short time that PUT's been around, and we owe that entirely to our members and you know our, our friends and volunteers that are out there. It's it's a it's a big job, and I know it's one that you've been involved in for quite some time. So I think it would be appropriate just to to start there. But my first question for you is, you know, we're, we're all pharmacy advocates here at PUT. We're pharmacy advocates. You call your blog the pharmacist activist? That's correct. And um, I love the emphasis in PUT's name, truth and transparency. And in my opinion, it has been the lack of that that has resulted in many of the challenges that pharmacy is facing today. And you and your colleagues have had the vision uh, to not only recognize that, but to rally around it and to continue to push for this type of approach being incorporated not only into our profession of pharmacies challenges, but I would suggest healthcare in general. I don't claim to be a pharmacist activist, although I guess um, having published my newsletter for 18 years, there are some who would view me that way. But it's um, 
a situation in which back in, uh, well, really it preceded 2006 when I started the pharmacist activist. When APHA started Pharmacy Today, the original editor-in-chief, unfortunately, experienced a major health problem and was not able to continue. And I was asked if I would serve in that capacity. And that stimulated my thinking about the development of editorials that would hopefully provoke thought and action. I don't claim to have the expertise and uh, solutions, but I hope that my writing, my editorial commentaries are sufficient to motivate those who do have the abilities and the resources to mobilize those efforts. My experience in pharmacy goes back to the time I started pharmacy school and just the remarkable advances that have occurred in pharmacy. I just need to keep reminding myself that there have been accomplishments, but the underlying question is whether the accomplishments are keeping pace with the extent to which the challenges have grown. And I have to think, regrettably, that the challenges are now overriding the accomplishments and successes. But just in terms of the accomplishments and to draw a contrast, between when I started pharmacy and now. When I started in pharmacy practice in the early 1960s, approach then was that the patient did not need to know and preferably should not know the name of the medication they were taking. And of course, we've seen that situation come to the point where Yes, patients need to know as much as possible about the medication they are taking. And this has become an important part of the responsibility of pharmacists. So just going from the situation I first described, where if we were asked by a patient, what's this medication for? Our response was supposed to be, Oh, well, you should ask your physician about that. And I guess identifying the physician as the source of the prescription also reflects the meaningful change that has occurred because so many others, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, are now authorized to prescribe also. So even just the terminology going from the physician to the prescriber. The authorization for pharmacists to provide immunizations is just a wonderful accomplishment. And I just consider that to be a hard-fought extension 
to the abilities of the pharmacist to assume more responsibility, not only in our own profession, but in protecting the public health. And the COVID pandemic just illustrated the value of the role of the pharmacist. But I can't help but be concerned from the standpoint of how the COVID pandemic has imposed greater challenges for pharmacists to the point of being sources of stress and anxiety and mental challenges. So it seems that accomplishments are certainly occurring, and I don't want to underestimate the importance of them, but I have concern for the future of pharmacy, but let me say that I consider the issues not just for pharmacy, but for patients to be so important that we can't give up fighting. And certainly you and your colleagues have not. And I just commend the initiatives that you've taken. Thank you. That's that's very kind. You struck a chord with me of something you just, you just said. You were talking about patients and how it used to be. The patients didn't necessarily need to know about the medication. And I, I was reminded of how patients and pharmacists have always had that, that very special relationship. I mean, I, I, as a child, some of my earliest memories are of going into you know the clinic and there's the it's the doctor's office right this this white sterile looking environment and then there's this pharmacy you know that's also there and and even as a kid just remembering like how nice the pharmacists were like you'd get a lollipop as your mom was picking up your medication yes. uh, and over time that how stretched and strained that relationship has become as a function of, you know, all the all these dynamics. I mean, certainly COVID-19, sort of this massive wedge that was driven into an already relationship that was beginning to, I think, strain under the pressure of, you know, demands that were out of the control of the pharmacists and the staff and the patients, right? We talk about pharmacy benefit managers. You mentioned years ago, you mentioned the um you phrased it more prescriptions faster, fill more prescriptions, fill them faster model. You yeah. mentioned this years and years and years ago. And now, now in this latest issue of the pharmacist activist, you talk about the moral injury that's being caused to pharmacists. I, I that's that's just got to be, I imagine as you look at that, I, that's just got to be so shocking, don't you think? Most definitely. And I would have to say that. The moral injury term I identified, or I think the individual that has given the most focus to that, is a physician, Wendy Dean, who has written a book about her observations and experiences in medicine. And she shares a number of examples of situations in which healthcare and prescribers' practices, they become so stressful and to a certain extent depersonalized that the pressure on the physicians 
who have gone into the medical practice as pharmacists do because of their interest, their commitment to healthcare, and their commitment to serve patients. But my observation is that those opportunities are eroding under the burden of economics. We have the most expensive healthcare system in the world in the United States. Yet I have to wonder whether the quality of care isn't declining with all the sophisticated advances in technology, uh, surgical procedures, new medications, going from the traditional dosage forms to gene therapies to monoclonal antibodies. This is truly remarkable. But my concern is that the healthcare system has been taken over, and I can only hope and pray that it's reversible, but it's been taken over by health insurance companies and PBMs and government officials who personally contribute absolutely nothing to the quality of care for a patient, but are going further and reducing the quality of care provided by the health professionals, pharmacists, physicians, nurses, who are interacting directly with the patient. And you mentioned that special relationship with the community, with individual patients, with the pharmacist. They knew the pharmacist, the pharmacist knew them. But if anything, that is disappearing. And one of the thoughts that has struck me recently, a very large fraction of the U.S. population obtains their medications from a community pharmacy, a local retail pharmacy, or a mail-order pharmacy. Now, this is a primary reason for which I want to be as strong, as strong an advocate as possible for independent pharmacies. Now, I continue to hear, well, you're supporting a concept that is becoming more nostalgic than realistic in the current marketplace. It's not realistic to consider that independent pharmacies are going to be able to continue to survive. Well, I've heard that concern for years. And if anything, and with the observation as to what's happened over that period of years, it is only clarified and strengthened my opinion that it is worth whatever activism and support we can invest in maintaining it. Now, others, including many of your members, are much more creative and imaginative in allowing 
this continuing survival and to the point that many independent pharmacies have found ways to thrive under challenging circumstances. But those situations are in the minority in comparison to what's happening otherwise in the provision of medications for ambulatory patients. And the realization I've come to is that much of the U.S. population are obtaining their medication from a local retail pharmacy, which now is most likely to be a chain pharmacy. I want to be clear. My criticism and concerns about chain pharmacy is with the executives, with the management of those huge corporations. I am very concerned about the pharmacist working in, and for chain pharmacies, I call them stores rather than pharmacies because healthcare is not the priority for the executives. But there are many excellent pharmacists practicing in those settings. And there are some more, let's say, localized or regional chains uh, that are really trying to do as good a job as possible in serving the interest of the patients and the community and providing a fulfilling professional opportunity for their pharmacist and pharmacy technicians. But as you look at the local retail picture right now in pharmacy, it's that most individuals are going into a chain pharmacy. And it's if it's a, if it's a CVS or Walgreens or Rite Aid, there are exceptions. And somehow there are pharmacists who rise above the metrics and understaffing to still maintain communication and counseling for some patients. But as that practice situation becomes more and more stressful, which I think there would be little disagreement with, those pharmacists, they're experiencing moral injury. And for some, that is a source of such frustration that it has an impact mentally. And for practical purposes, in many of the chain pharmacies, there is no direct interaction between the pharmacist and the patient. And then when you consider mail order pharmacies, um, the pharmacist is invisible. And sometimes even if an individual has a question and tries to um, get a response, they are frustrated by you know the different options uh, that they have to select when calling by phone. And I know from several pharmacists who work in that situation and responding to the calls that one of the things on which they are evaluated is um, the brevity of the call. In other words, 
how many calls will they respond to in the period of an hour? And from the standpoint of management, to the extent they can keep the length of a call as short as possible, that's um, advantageous from an economic standpoint. So it's the economic priority that is driving the system rather than a commitment to the healthcare and the mental and professional well-being of the pharmacist. The metrics are, are crazy. The ones that you just brought up, the number of calls that they're required to make, the, the shortness of the call, the number of prescriptions that need to be filled. It is the mechanization of pharmacy in addition to the commoditization of pharmacy. So you have the commoditization, which is it's just any old thing. You can get your medicine wherever, same place you pick up your paper towels, order it from Amazon. And then there's the mechanization, turning these human beings who went to school, who took an oath of patient care is a serious thing. You know, they, they've trained, they've taken this oath, and now they're in the system that is requiring them to do really what is the opposite of care. Very short phone calls, very short counseling sessions. You are a professor. You've had many decades of teaching students. I'm, this has just got to be mind-boggling for you to witness. Uh, <laughs> it is. And I, I have to force myself to focus on the positives. But one of the positives I mentioned earlier was the authorization for immunization. Now, well, let me back up a moment. For a pharmacy and pharmacists to be available to provide personalized services and communication with patients requires the pharmacy to be profitable. And if a pharmacy cannot operate profitably, it will not continue to be available to provide the services and the counseling that I advocate. So there's no question that the economic factors are extremely important. And getting back also to an earlier comment, the individuals who are determining the parameters under which medications are to be provided and the cost of them, this recent CVS announcement that they are establishing new, simpler processes. Well, the individuals who are making the opinions that mandate what happens in the marketplace, they themselves are in the middle and insurance companies and PBMs, they are not contributing a thing personally to the care and evaluation and monitoring of patients. And that just has to be changed. And I just hope it doesn't come to a situation in which the healthcare system erodes to the point that individuals just are so outraged and so disadvantaged. Yes, it's good that we can focus on the positives, that there are life-sustaining medications. The advances have 
been remarkable. But the way they have been manipulated or the distribution and provision has been manipulated, I think has contributed to a certain extent for the benefit in providing the medications, but on the other hand, has placed patients at greater risk, either because of an increased number of errors. And one of the huge frustrations about the errors is that nobody knows how many occur. In my opinion, it has to be uh, considerably larger than some of the estimates, but nobody has an accurate idea of the number of errors and how many of them have serious consequences. Now, I should clarify that. Yes, there are some organizations that do have the idea, and that's because chain pharmacies require documentation of errors in their pharmacies. Now, some chain pharmacists will acknowledge that if um, an error is caught early or if there's no significant consequence, they may never get reported it. But just for example, it'd be interesting to know how many lawsuits are filed against a CVS or a Walgreens. They have that information, obviously. They also have the information from their internally developed uh, reports by pharmacists, but they absolutely will not release any of that information. I've been intrigued by the possibility of uh, you never want a serious error to occur, but they do. And my thought process is one in which I wonder whether the plaintiffs for a patient who's been a victim of the errors could subpoena the documents from a chain organization to um, provide their data for their company regarding error reports. But the companies will do everything they can to protect that information because of the damaging effect it would have on their reputation. And it's just a vicious cycle. But again, in coming back to the patient, patients need the information and the counseling that pharmacists are in the best position to provide. But the metrics, the understaffing, I was in a recent discussion with a former student of mine who works in a hospital practice. She's, she's an exceptional pharmacist, but her responsibilities have provide relatively little direct communication with patients. So yes, she's applying her pharmacy expertise, but the lack of opportunity to be interacting herself with the patients creates a mindset that, well, I have all this information. I think it is benefiting the other health professionals and the patients, but I don't personally see that. And with 
that scenario, it becomes more difficult to motivate myself to continue to acquire expertise, even when I think it is being used to advantage. But I don't personally provide it to the recipient of the services. And I was very interested and hadn't really thought about that perspective from the standpoint of the pharmacist. And this is where retail pharmacy has such an opportunity. I consider independent pharmacists to be the heart and the soul of our profession. And they deserve the full support of the entire profession. And I've provided the example that even though I taught at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy for 52 years, outside my students and um, alumni and professional colleagues and my close friends, nobody knew, nobody would have occasion to know what I did. But the community pharmacist and the role of an independent pharmacist is known to the community. Their expertise, their confidence in the availability of the pharmacist just establishes a personal relationship. And it gets back to the concept of what qualifies one to be considered a health professional? And I think that the cardinal criterion would be direct personal interaction with a patient. And there are many exceptional roles that can be very fulfilling for pharmacists in the hospital environment, for example. But many hospital pharmacists don't have the opportunity to interact directly with patients. Now, maybe there's a clinic that is very busy, that it's not unlike some of the chain store operations. But even a pharmacist on a satellite unit in a hospital, they may provide the medication more quickly. They may provide information, but typically it's a nurse or a nurse's aide that is conveying that information and medication to the patient and not the pharmacist. So even though there are some exceptional responsibilities for pharmacists in areas outside of community pharmacy, that's not assurance or a guarantee that that service and communication will be directly with the recipient who benefits the patient. I was just thinking as you were sharing, uh, you have taught many, many, many students, brought many pharmacists into the profession. And from your experience of how it was to how it is, I'm curious how the curriculum, I guess, the pharmacy, how that has changed, if that has changed, 
how are how are students being prepared for this world that they're about to matriculate into that isn't, as we've been talking about, as communication-oriented as it once was. Pharmacies are the health hub. You have certainly, you know, nailed that one down in your description. But you know, how do you prepare students for this world now? That's a great question, uh, for which I'm not sure I have have answers. But I would say historically and today, the greatest expertise that is provided in a college of pharmacy education is knowledge about the medications, the comprehensiveness of that knowledge, the application of that knowledge. But what I see occurring, and I guess just from the standpoint of it, of example, there was a time when in our baccalaureate curriculum going back into the 1900s, that we had a very comprehensive curriculum that featured the acquisition of drug therapy knowledge. We had courses in therapeutics and pharmacology occupying many credits of the curriculum as the opportunities for pharmacists and the importance of related topics increased. If anything, the um, emphasis on drug therapy knowledge has diminished. And I consider that to be a risk for pharmacy education. But then the question becomes, to what extent are practicing pharmacists really in a position to use that knowledge that they've acquired? I mean, I just value the knowledge I acquired over the years. I mean, starting from the standpoint that I taught every topic in therapeutics at one time, but the information to be learned has become so vast that it's more challenging to acquire a general knowledge of therapeutics enough to apply and also enough to recognize when the services or the advice of a specialist is needed or someone who knows more about the topic than I do. But it needs that gatekeeper, sort of analogous to the primary care physician in medicine or the internal medicine physician who's out there as the first medical provider that the patient would see. And I view the pharmacist, particularly the independent pharmacist, as the source of that information, advice, and indeed wisdom from experience. So in one respect, I have concerns about reduced emphasis of drug therapy expertise. Just for example, and I've not had a, a chance to uh, check out the specifics, but I just saw something in the news recently to the extent that the California Board of Pharmacy is uh, 
going to mandate DEI training for pharmacists and technicians. Now, I don't want to underestimate the importance of the recognition and the opportunity for individuals from different backgrounds, whatever they are. But sometimes the focus on issues like that, cultural competency is another area that is extremely important. But I, I think pharmacy schools, first of all, have to assume greater responsibility and involvement in the types of opportunities available for their graduates. In many situations now, one of the claims for success of a college of pharmacy is the percentage of a graduating class that goes into a residency or a fellowship program or some advanced degree program. And as a lifelong educator, I would never discourage an individual from further building on their knowledge and experience through advanced opportunities. But the vast majority of patients are in the community. And I've often said that, and I said earlier that the independent pharmacist I consider to be the face and the soul of the pharmacy profession. We could take all of the pharmacists practicing in areas other than community pharmacy and put them all together, and the numbers would be minuscule in comparison to the ones in the community. One of the realizations uh, that occurred to me in considering the high percentage of patients who get their medications from a community pharmacy or a mail order pharmacy is that they are visible. Well, not mail order pharmacies, but otherwise they're visible. And it's oftentimes through those interactions and historically, it's been through an, an experience of a young person working part-time in an independent pharmacy that motivated their decision to go to a college of pharmacy and pursue pharmacy as a career. And I've made the observation that I think some of the large chains with their understaffing and uh, metrics, um, they're killing the applicant pool because young people who are working part-time in a chain pharmacy are basically hearing and observing stress and negativity, sometimes voiced directly by the pharmacist. And if anything, that can repel them from considering pharmacy as a career rather than bringing uh, them closer to it and to decisions to pursue this as a career. Now, obviously, I'm speaking in general, there are many exceptions where individuals are motivated as young people working part-time in a chain pharmacy and have the benefit of a 
satisfied pharmacist in that store, typically a lower volume store. But those types of situations are becoming um, scarcer. I agree. I think you have done a fabulous job of distilling down the problem. I've said for some time now, pharmacy has a PR problem. Uh, When the very first article that I read about the workplace conditions came out, and that was a year, maybe two years ago now, it was in the New York Times, it was so shocking and so scary to read the stories of these people who are working very hard without breaks, not able to, you know, just even take a normal, you know, restroom break, let alone, uh, you know, just sit down for a few minutes. It finds its root in pharmacy benefit managers. Um, it finds its root in the perverse incentives that have been going on and structured, you know, for some time. And now we're seeing a lot of media coverage on that. But you, uh, in this latest article, you were talking about the media coverage on the pharmacy concerns on the workplace conditions. Now, of course, we've seen CVS has recently, I, I guess yesterday, come out with a, an announcement about a new way that they plan to pay pharmacies. Express Scripts said it has a new way to pay pharmacies. Over here at Putt, we're, we're skeptical. We've already picked apart the Express Scripts plan. We know that that is not what it was initially publicized to be. We, we do not yet know about CVS. We're, so we're not there yet in our analysis. But I guess my question for you is, do you think that with the media scrutiny, with the attention on uh, the profession, how the profession is harming pharmacists and and then by extension patients, do you think that attention could have some benefit in the end? Might it turn it around for this profession? I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. Well, Monique, um, my November issue of the Pharmacist Activist carries a title, Pharmacy Concerns Are Receiving Unprecedented Media Coverage. Now, there was a USA Today front page article in the end of October by Emily Lacaz, and her coverage was motivated by her awareness of a serious medication error for a young boy, a two-year-old boy, who was prescribed an anti-epileptic drug in a liquid formulation and was given a significant overdosage because the wrong instructions were placed on the label. But one of the pharmacists she interviewed encouraged her to look at my website for the pharmacist activist, and she contacted me. And that resulted in numerous and lengthy discussions, which I was happy to provide. And I was also able to identify individuals who would be able to be good sources, uh, some publicly, others uh, who uh, are currently employed in situations that would put them at risk of termination if their identity was known. At each point along the way, she became aware of additional factors that increase the risk of errors. And what was intended to be an investigative report published back in August didn't actually get published until the end of October because 
she was just so concerned about what she was learning and the extent to which individuals can be at risk. Now, the coverage, in my opinion, is exceptional. You never like to see an error, first of all, occur, or secondly, publicized in a way that would only be viewed negatively as a pharmacist mistake. But she went deeper into the underlying reason, seeking explanations for why these risks exist. Now, you can never eliminate risk entirely. So the goal is to keep it at the lowest level possible. And she did an exceptional job in reporting and in connecting the multiple factors that result in the situation we're experiencing today. Now, as I note in this commentary, the media coverage now is unprecedented. I have been interviewed in the last uh, three weeks by two other reporters for national publications. They are really focusing on these areas and the investigative reporters who are doing the best job get into the circumstances in a way that lets them connect the multiple pieces the actual situation in the pharmacy. I was speaking with a CVS pharmacist recently who said they were just so overwhelmed that there were like nine phones ringing simultaneously that they just didn't have the time to pick up. Anyway, I am viewing this coverage as something that we should try to direct in a positive way to emphasize the message we have as pharmacists. And you mentioned earlier that we've not done a good job in public relations, which with which I would fully concur. And even sometimes, I remember some years ago testifying at a legislative hearing with regard to a prescription benefit, government prescription benefit program in our state. And I was uh, noting the positive things that a pharmacist could contribute to patient understanding and appropriate use of the medication that would wind up in positive outcomes. And a legislator questioned me and he said, where are these pharmacists? When I go into a pharmacy, if I see a pharmacist, there's not really any discussion. So I can go in there and walk out knowing nothing more about how to use the medication or the condition for which it was prescribed. And I was so fortunate that before I tried to respond to that, another legislator on the committee made the observation and he said, oh, my pharmacist does that all the time. And it was so encouraging to hear and so timely to hear. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but, yeah, but 
you know, they're, they're anecdotal situations. Now, one of the things I include in my current commentary, and I've already heard from one very knowledgeable individual in the healthcare area, they said, oh, you included too much. What I did was to excerpt the coverage from several of these um, media outlets like the USA Today or article, and it's at some length. And essentially, for those of us who are aware of the situation, this is not news. Many have personally experienced it. And the comment was made to me, you need to focus more on options, on solutions. And and he's absolutely right. And I wish I had more than I did. But one concept that has been of interest to me, I mean, certainly the pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs, I think, have done more to harm pharmacy than any other single force. And the relationship, usually within the same corporation, I mean, CVS being an example, they have the community stores, they have mail order pharmacies, they have Caremark as the PBM, and they have Aetna, the health insurance company, all within the same corporate structure. And they just are, I would say, imposing a system that is not only harmful or not only puts patients at risk, but also makes the responsibilities of professionals like prescribers and pharmacists less fulfilling. So I'm hopeful that this coverage will um, help pharmacy mobilize it. If we can increase public, the awareness of the public, and that's that's tough to harness uh, in terms of follow-up action. I am encouraged by, um, and mention this also, by the comments of Michael Hogue, the relatively new CEO. He's a past president of APHA, but I've had concerns that our professional associations have not provided enough leadership and support for independent pharmacists in particular. But he has come out with the strongest statement regarding the underlying issues and has called specific attention to the PBMs that impose these DIR fees and um, the other parameters that detract from the pharmacist's ability to devote time to um, patients on a personal basis and place them at financial risk. And, you know, I think a caution for independent pharmacies is some strive to survive financially by reducing the amount of time that they devote to communication with the patients. 
just for example, the synchronization of medications is a brilliant concept that just um, provides efficiencies in the way of inventorying medication and provision of refills of chronic medications and the opportunity for sitting down with a patient and talking about all their medications, let's say on a monthly basis. Well, I see some independent pharmacists who have such concerns about surviving financially that, okay, the medications are provided at the same time, but it's not with the discussion and counseling that the broader concept of MedSync was developed. And I think by leaving out that, some independent pharmacists who are the most highly motivated are relinquishing their greatest strength. But that greatest strength doesn't have financial remuneration tied to it. And that is vulnerable in terms of the pharmacist that just has to give more attention to surviving financially, let alone earning a profit. And it just pains me to see that or to become aware of that even in the some of the pharmacies for which I have provided the strongest advocacy. I don't I don't fault them. I think the entire profession has failed the independent pharmacist. First of all, in not recognizing the value of independent pharmacists. And and I include myself among that group. I mean, I like to think that I have had a very positive influence on the students with whom I've been fortunate to come to know and maybe contribute a little bit to their knowledge and eventual success. But I've been part of the group that has observed and allowed the current situation to develop. And that's one of the reasons for which I've persisted with these um, commentaries. Not that I can say that things have been accomplished. When I write a commentary that's critical, for example, of CVS, the response from the readers from whom I get the most responses are CVS pharmacists who say, we're so glad that somebody else understands what we are dealing with. We can't raise questions, let alone be critical of what's happening in our pharmacy because we would risk termination, replacement, being um, <clears throat> subjected to disciplinary action. And that's the sort of response I get that you know encourages me to do more. But I think a key factor is that our profession in its entirety has not done enough 
to support, to be an advocate for, to promote student consideration of working in or owning an independent pharmacy. And I think for the colleges of pharmacy to, um, well, I think they're one segment of the profession that is not, okay, we um, provide the education. We prepare you to go out and get a um, position with a six-figure salary, and um, we've done our job. Well, I would suggest that that's not the case because chain pharmacy has to be the employer of more pharmacists than anybody else. And those pharmacists are not fulfilled. They are looking for ways to get out, even to uh, the point where some leave the profession entirely. And the other aspect that I mentioned earlier is that I think particularly uh, this should be of concern to colleges of pharmacy, but I question how many have even recognized it, is um, the applicant pool. And almost all colleges of pharmacy are experiencing a reduction in applicants and there are reduced enrollments as a consequence. One of the factors or one of the risks associated with that is, will there be less attention given to the qualifications of the applicants and their motivation, which have a significant impact on um, their potential success and contribution to the profession. So I would say many of the challenges faced by the profession are rooted in the lack of emphasis and focus and support, not only verbal, but financial to support independent pharmacy and promote its growth. The other concept that I like to think about is whether our profession could design, let's say, a pharmacy benefit plan that could be demonstrated to provide the therapeutic outcomes and fulfilling employment opportunities for pharmacy in a way that the advantages would just be superior to what individuals are receiving, what patients are receiving now. Just the complexity of the questions and concerns about, oh, well, is this drug covered or does it need prior authorization? I mean, it's baffling to many consumers. We see all these advertisements now about the uh, selecting, well, I guess, uh, you know, we're at the uh, completion of that uh, open enrollment period or changes in enrollment. But most individuals don't have the basic understanding to sort through those programs. And when you call one of those 800 numbers, you're going to get someone on the line who has a working relationship with some of those programs. And I I think that in many respects, pharmacists are positioned to be healthcare navigators, which um, 
would require more time. And the you know, first question is, how would the pharmacist benefit financially from doing this? Or would it be a, an opportunity that could only be pursued within a affluent community by a, a concierge practice or something like that? But we need to explore those models. And um, there have to be individuals within the profession. I think another possibility is for a leadership group within pharmacy to just convene the pharmacist with the greatest expertise to sort through the challenges, come up with potential options, some of which might have great potential, some of which would um, uh, not be worthy of pursuing further. I wish I had more answers uh, rather than concerns, but for our preservation and further enhancement of what we want to have as a professional role for the pharmacist, these are questions that our entire profession must address. And it's not just APHA and NCPA and HUT. It's going to need a commitment to the advancement of the entire profession. And I, I'm of the opinion that if it was not for the foundation of community pharmacy, the other roles that are increasingly being sought by graduates of colleges of pharmacy would not have developed. And so there's a question that if the respect for the community pharmacist is allowed to diminish within the profession, it's only a matter of time until the opportunities in other areas diminish also, because they're basically unknown to the va uh, vast majority of the public. Yes, it's uh, absolutely true. You just so brilliantly summed up the state of the profession and, and how we've gotten here. I see why you were the recipient of the very honorable Remington Award by the American Pharmacists Association. That's so well done. And I have something like 16 other questions to talk to you about the future, but we're reaching a point where we're about to run out of time. And so I'd love to have you come back for another time in the near future so we can continue this conversation because what you have been talking about is so rich and, and I think so important. As I mentioned at the beginning, I have been impressed for a long time with your with your work and having looked back to the earliest parts of your archive to see how you were 18 years ago talking about PBMs and independent pharmacists and workplace conditions. I'm not sure if you knew at that time that you were speaking into something that would only increase as, as a problem, <laughs> but it was brilliant and, and remains so. Dr. Dan Hassar, thank you so much for being our guest today on the podcast. We appreciate you. Thank you, Monique. Dr. Dan Hassar, thank you so much for joining us today. And to our listeners, thank you for being part of today's discussion. We love hearing from you. If you have questions for Dr. Hassar or comments about this episode, you can reach us anytime at info at truthrx.org. 
If you're interested in learning more about PUT or joining PUT, please check us out at truthrx.org forward slash donate. And again, special thanks to our sponsor, Data Scan Pharmacy Software. We will see you next time on the podcast.